Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the reading of the New York Times for Friday, October 27th, 2023. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that makes it difficult to read printed material. The New York Times is donated to Radio Eye by the Lexington Herald Leader. Your reader for today is Blanca Michael Ward. We begin with Merriam-Webster's Word of the Day. Shill. Shill, spelled S-H-I-L-L, a verb. What it means. Shill is an informal word that is used disapprovingly to mean to talk about or describe someone or something in a favorable way for pay. It is usually prepared with for. Example, it's very common to see influencers shilling for different brands on their social media accounts. Merriam-Webster's word of the day, shill. We continue with the New York Times bestsellers in combined print and ebook fiction. In first place, new this week, The Exchange by John Grisham. In second place, 25 weeks on the list, Fourth Wing by Rebecca Yaros. In third place, 50 weeks on the list, Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. In fourth place, new this week, Two Twisted Crowns by Rachel Gillig. And in fifth place, three weeks on the list, Wildfire by Hannah Grace. We continue with bestsellers in combined print and ebook nonfiction. In first place, we have 99 weeks on the list, Killers of the Moon by David Gran. In second place, new this week, Prequel by Rachel Maddow. In third place, four weeks on the list, Enough by Cassidy Hutchinson. In fourth place, new this week, Worthy by Jada Pinkett Smith. And in fifth place, also new this week, Behind the Seams by Dolly Parton with Holly George Warren. Here are today's headlines from the front page of the New York Times. A dark day for Maine, 18 dead, cities on edge, and new scars to heal. Region shut down as gunman is sought. Taps run dry and food grows scarce in Gaza. Waiting hours to buy bread and resorting to salty water. Gaza invasion being held up over divisions. Palestinian debate inflames university donors. Heeding the rules and now languishing in migrant purgatory. Texas votes to arrest migrants testing reach of state powers. We begin with this story. Dark day for Maine after gunman kills 18 at bowling alley and bar. The story was written by Jenna Russell, Amelia Nirenberg, Nicholas Bogle Burroughs, and Michael Levinson. The familiar rituals of a Wednesday night were playing out at Just-In-Time Recreation, a bowling alley in Lewiston, Maine, with 22 lanes of 10-pin and a restaurant serving nachos and wings. Parents and children were there for a children's bowling league. Regulars were midway through their weekly games, unwinding after work. Then, a man wearing a brown hooded sweatshirt 
and carrying a military-style semi-automatic rifle, walked in. <clears throat> Trisha Asselin, 53, was there with her sister, Bobby Nichols, when they heard a bang, and then another, from the lanes reserved for children's night. <clears throat> As they sprinted for the exit with Miss Nichols in the lead, Miss Aslan, who worked at the alley and was there on a night off, peeled off into the kitchen to grab her cell phone so she could call 911. Miss Nichols bolted through the door thinking her sister was behind her. When she realized she wasn't, it was too late. Bobby tried to get back, she said. My sister's in there, my sister's in there, their mother, Alicia Lachance, said by phone, from her home in Okeechobee, Florida. Miss Aslan had not been officially identified as among the victims on Thursday, but the family was expecting the worst. They told her, nobody in there is alive anymore, her mother said. Minutes after attacking the alley, the armed man showed up at Shemenji's Bar and Grill, a few miles away, where people were playing cornhole and billiards and opened fire again. By the time he finished shooting at the bar and the bowling alley, 18 people had been killed and 13 others had been injured, Governor Janet Mills of Maine said. Afterward, the gunman fled, forcing a major lockdown across the region as hundreds of law enforcement officials searched on Thursday for a suspect they identified as Robert R. Card, 40, of Bodine, Maine. The authorities warned that he should be considered armed and dangerous. Around 7.30 p.m., officers were outside a home in Bodine owned by Mr. Card's family, as a helicopter circled overhead. We are not going away, one officer said over a loudspeaker. You need to come outside now. Hours later, law enforcement vehicles were seen leaving the property, and a spokeswoman for the state police said officers had been serving search warrants and they did not find the suspect there. They will be back at it tomorrow, Shannon Moss, the spokeswoman, wrote in a text. The rampage made Lewiston, a scrappy, working-class city of nearly 40,000, the latest scene of America's mass shooting crisis. It also put the region on edge as the police warned residents of Lewiston and several other nearby towns to stay home as they searched for Mr. Card. We believe this is someone who should not be approached, Colonel William G. Ross of the Maine State Police said. It was the deadliest mass shooting in the United States since May 2022, when a gunman killed 19 children and two teachers at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. Although the details provided by the authorities were sparse, including whether any children were killed, the familiar outlines of the massacre, a lone gunman snuffing out innocent lives with a powerful weapon, pushed Americans and their leaders into familiar corners. President Biden, who ordered flags at federal buildings to be flown at half-staff to honor the victims, urged Congress to ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines and to enact universal background checks, among other steps. This is the very least we owe every American who will now bear the scars, physical and mental, of this latest attack, Mr. Biden said in a statement. Representative Jared Golden, whose district includes Lewiston, had been one of the few House Democrats who opposed an assault weapons ban, citing the strong tradition of gun ownership in the area. But at a news conference Thursday evening, he said he would now support a ban. The time has come for me to take responsibility for this failure, he said, adding, I ask for forgiveness and support. When asked if she too would support a ban, Senator Susan Collins, Republican of Maine, 
said it was more important to ban very high-capacity magazines, which let shooters fire more rounds without stopping to reload. She added, certainly there's always more that can be done. But Republicans who adamantly defend the right to bear arms were not expected to back such measures. Representative Mike Johnson of Louisiana, the newly elected House Speaker, did not mention any legislative response as he answered questions about the shooting. This is a dark time in America, Mr. Johnson, a Republican, told reporters in Washington. We have a lot of problems and we're really, really hopeful and prayerful. Prayer is appropriate at a time like this that the evil can end and this senseless violence can stop. Miss Mills called it a dark day for Maine. With 18 dead, the largely rural state recorded as many homicides in a few minutes on Wednesday night as it had in some recent years. The state had 29 homicides last year, 20 in 2021, and 18 in each of the previous two years. Our small state of just 1.3 million people has long been known as one of the safest states in the nation, Ms. Mills, a Democrat, said. This attack strikes at the very heart of who we are and the values we hold dear for this precious place we call home. As the police sought the suspect, government buildings, local school districts, and universities in the southern part of the state were closed. Businesses across a vast swath of Maine, from beach towns close to the New Hampshire border to towns in the woods nearly 200 miles north, also shut down. The streets of Lewiston were nearly deserted on Thursday morning. Nearby, at a middle school, where families waited on Wednesday night for news of loved ones, only one car was parked in the lot. Bates College in Lewiston locked down its campus and postponed the inauguration of its new president, Gary Jenkins. Residents said they were on guard as a growing contingent of local, state, and federal officers swarmed the region. After spending the night indoors, afraid to even open the curtains, Traylon Smith, 19, and Serenity Muscara, 18, ventured out around lunchtime Thursday to get something to eat. Miss Smith was carrying a knife in her pocket. Even talking about it gives me goosebumps, she said. I've never seen my state like this. Colonel Ross said on Thursday that a vehicle found at a boat landing in Lisbon, Maine, about eight miles from Lewiston, had been connected to Mr. Card. He gave no other details about possible developments in the manhunt. Details of Mr. Card's life were scarce on Thursday. Military officials said he was a sergeant first class in the Army Reserve, assigned to the 3rd Battalion, 304th Infantry Regiment in Sacco, Maine, and had enlisted in 2002. He had no combat deployments and served as a petroleum supply specialist, shipping and storing vehicle and aircraft fuel. Investigators were looking into a run-in Mr. Card had with officials during a recent visit to Camp Smith, a National Guard training facility not far from West Point in New York, a senior law enforcement official said on condition of anonymity because the official was not authorized to discuss the incident. The official said that Mr. Card was later evaluated at a mental health facility. The first 911 call reporting gunfire at the bowling alley on Wednesday came in at 6.56 p.m., Colonel Ross said. Chad Vincent was in the fifth frame of his weekly game when he heard what sounded like a table crashing on the floor or something. There were 30 to 50 bowlers in the alley, he said, in addition to about 26 people from his league. Nobody really screamed, Mr. Vincent said. Nobody knew what it was. But about five seconds later, he heard another bang, and one of his bowling partners shouted, Hey, 
That's a gun. That's gunshots. Mr. Vincent, 45, ran toward a back exit and dialed 911. He and other bowlers from his league ran through the woods to an Italian restaurant and locked themselves inside until loved ones came to pick them up. Mr. Vincent said they were in disbelief. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We're going. This is Maine, he said. This is not happening. This stuff doesn't happen in Maine. Everybody's nice. We usually don't have problems. About 12 minutes after the 911 calls reporting gunfire at the bowling alley, the police received calls that a gunman was inside Shimenji's Bar and Grill. Brian McFarlane, 41, was part of a gathering of deaf people there when the shooting started. His mother, Jeanette Rendazzo, said, on Thursday, two police officers came to her home to confirm her worst fears, that her son was dead. I have a picture in my head of my kid lying there with gunshot wounds somewhere on the body, she said. It's traumatic to me just imagining it. Joseph Walker, 57, a manager at the bar, was also fatally shot according to his father, Leroy Walker Sr., 74, a city councillor in Auburn, Maine. Mr. Walker said the police had told his son's wife that the younger Mr. Walker died a hero because he picked up a nearby butcher's knife and tried to go at the gunman. My Joey will be missed by thousands, Mr. Walker said on Thursday as he sat outside his apartment crying. Mr. Walker said he did not feel angry toward the men who killed his son. There's so much hate in this world, and people who have a sickness or a mind that's a little off tilt, they go to hate, he said. If he's sick in the head, I can't hold anything against him. Christy Strout said Thursday afternoon that she had not heard from her husband, Arthur, since about a half hour before the shooting at the bar. He had been playing pool with friends in preparation for a game he had on Thursday, Miss Strout said. She thinks one of his teammates was shot, but she had not received any news or information from the authorities. She said she was waiting for the medical examiner to tell her more. I have three kids. I want closure, she said. We don't want to sit here and wonder. We continue with this story. Israel's army is ready to invade Gaza. Its divided government may not be. This story was written by Patrick Kingsley and Ronan Bergman. Its troops are massed on the Gaza border and described as ready to move, but Israel's political and military leaders are divided about how, when, and even whether to invade, according to seven senior military officials and three Israeli officials. In part, they say, the delay is intended to give negotiators more time to secure the release of some of the more than 200 hostages captured by Hamas and other armed Palestinian groups when they raided Israel three weeks ago. But Israeli leaders who have vowed to retaliate against Hamas for its brutal massacre of civilians have yet to agree on how to do so, though the military could move as soon as Friday. Some of them worry that an invasion might suck the Israeli army into an intractable urban battle inside Gaza. Others fear a broader conflict with a Lebanese militia allied to Hamas, Hezbollah, firing long-range missiles toward Israeli cities. There is also debate over whether to conduct the invasion through one large operation or a series of smaller ones. 
And then there are questions about who would govern Gaza if Israel captured it. You have a cabinet with different opinions, said Danny Dannon, a senior lawmaker from Likud, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's right-wing party. Some would say that we have to start. Then we can think about the next stage, said Mr. Dannon, a member of the Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee in the Israeli parliament. But we, as the leadership, as statesmen, we have to set the goals, and the goals should be very clear, he said. It shouldn't be vague. Disarray has swept Israel since terrorists from Gaza overran a swath of southern Israel, killing roughly 1,400 people, briefly capturing more than 20 villages and army bases, and outmaneuvering the most powerful military in the Middle East. The shock of the attack has shaken Israeli's sense of invincibility and raised doubts and debate about how their country should best respond. Immediately afterward, the government called up around 360,000 reservists and deployed many of them at the border with Gaza. Senior officials soon spoke of removing Hamas from power in the enclave, raising expectations of an imminent ground operation there. But nearly three weeks later, the Netanyahu government has yet to give the go-ahead, though the military says it has made a few brief incursions over the border and that it will make still more in the days ahead. The United States has urged Israel not to rush into a ground invasion, even as it pledges full support for its ally. But domestic considerations have also played a role in the delay. Beyond the hostages, there is concern about the toll of the operation and uncertainty about what exactly it might mean to destroy Hamas, a social movement as well as a military force that is deeply embedded in Gazan society. When asked what the military objectives of the operation are, an Israeli military spokesman said the goal was to dismantle Hamas. How would the army know it had achieved that goal? That's a big question, and I don't think I have the capability right now to answer that one, the spokesman, Lieutenant Colonel Richard Heck, said at a news briefing a week after the attack. <clears throat> one immediate concern is the fate of the hostages and the negotiations mediated by Qatar to secure the release of at least some of them, according to an Israeli official, three senior military officers, and a senior foreign diplomat familiar with the talks. The Israeli government wants to allow more time for those talks to make headway, perhaps to secure the release of captured women and children. While there is little internal disagreement about allowing a small window of time for further negotiation, there is a dispute between the military establishment and parts of Mr. Netanyahu's government about what to do if the negotiations fail, according to the officials and officers. The military leadership has already finalized an invasion plan, but Mr. Netanyahu has angered senior officers by refusing to sign off on it, in part because he wants unanimous approval from members of the war cabinet he formed after the October 7th attack, according to two people present at cabinet meetings who spoke on the condition of anonymity in order to discuss sensitive matters. Analysts believe that Mr. Netanyahu is weary about unilaterally giving the go-ahead because with public confidence in his leadership already decreasing, he fears being blamed if the operation fails. All indication is that he's going to try and stay on, said Yohanan Plesner, president of the Israel Democracy Institute, a Jerusalem-based research group. Mr. Netanyahu's office declined to comment for this article, referring a reporter instead to a speech the Prime Minister made Wednesday night in which he promised to destroy Hamas without describing the method or timing of such an operation. 
We have set two goals for this war, to eliminate Hamas by destroying its military and governing abilities, and to do everything possible to bring our captives home, Mr. Netanyahu said. He added, <clears throat> We are preparing for a ground incursion. I will not detail when, how, or how many, or the overall considerations that we are taking into account, most of which are unknown to the public. The ambiguity appears to reflect divisions in the cabinet about whether to permit a full invasion of Gaza, which might plunge ground troops into daunting urban battle against thousands of Hamas fighters hiding within a network of tunnels hundreds of miles long dug deep beneath Gaza City. Instead, ministers are also considering a less ambitious plan involving several more limited incursions that target one small part of the enclave at a time. Within the military establishment, there is concern that Israel's goals will be blurred if Mr. Netanyahu follows through on his promise on Wednesday to simultaneously seek the liberation of all the hostages while also attempting to destroy Hamas. The first goal requires negotiation and accommodation with Hamas's leadership, while the second requires its annihilation, a difficult balance to strike, two senior military officials said. In a sign of internal division, the defense minister, Yohav Gallant, pointedly did not describe rescuing the hostages in a speech on Thursday evening as one of Israel's military objectives. The mutual suspicion between the military and the prime minister runs so deep that civil servants have barred the military from bringing recording equipment into cabinet meetings, according to two people present. They interpreted the move as an attempt to limit the amount of evidence that could be presented to a national inquiry after the war. Mr. Netanyahu has appeared unusually isolated since the Hamas attack, amid cratering poll numbers and accusations that his chaotic leadership over the past year had set the stage for the catastrophic security failure on October 7th. Few members of his government have given him their unqualified backing since the day, with many simply saying that scrutiny of the government's mistakes should wait until the war ends. I'm saying, in the clearest way possible, it is clear to me that Netanyahu and the entire government of Israel and everyone on whose watch this happened bears responsibility for what happened when government minister from Mr. Netanyahu's party, Miki Zohar, told a radio station on Thursday, that is also clear to Netanyahu, that he also bears responsibility. As recriminations begin, some allies have tried to deflect blame from the prime minister. A former Netanyahu aide began a social media campaign to prolong Israel's airstrikes on Gaza before any ground operation begins. And Aryeh Derry, a lawmaker and longtime supporter of the prime minister, told an interviewer on Monday that the army had only recently readied a plan to invade Gaza. The Israeli news media interpreted the assertion as an attempt to suggest it was the army, not the prime minister, that needed more time to prepare. But the ramifications of the October 7 attack and its aftermath extend far beyond Mr. Netanyahu's personal fate, said Mr. Plesner, the analyst. The shock of the Yom Kippur War of 1973, when Arab armies briefly overran Israeli defenses before being rebuffed, changed Israeli society and the trajectory of the Israeli state, he said. This event will probably be even more consequential, he said. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We continue with this story. Thirst and hunger grow in besieged Gaza amid Israeli bombardment. This was written by Raha. Abdul Rahim and Samar Abu Ilof. Mohammed Aborjela, 27, used to document daily life in the Gaza Strip on his Instagram account before the war. Videos about a crab dish prepared along the seaside or pigeon racing in the coastal enclave. Now he has turned to documenting daily life under Israeli bombardment. On Sunday, he posted a story about the daily struggle to find drinking water. He records snippets as he walks, carrying a bright yellow jug to one of the few water stations still functioning in the southern city of Khan Yunis. At the station, <coughs> people, many of them children who struggle to carry the full, to carry the full jugs home, jostle for position in a chaotic line to fill up on well water. There is no more water in the taps, so we have to get water in this way, Mr. Aborjela, a project coordinator with the development organization Youth Without Borders, told the New York Times. The conditions for filling up water are not healthy. People are on top of one another, and people are getting sick. Gaza, blockaded by Israel and Egypt for 16 years, has long had a precarious water supply. Residents relied on groundwater filtered at water stations, desalination plants, a pipeline from Israel, and bottled imports. Now the taps have run dry. Trucks are no longer refilling household water tanks and the desalination plants have largely ground to a halt for lack of electricity and fuel. <clears throat> Israel imposed a siege on Gaza on October 9th, cutting off water, food, electricity, and fuel in response to the attack on Israel two days earlier by Hamas, the armed Palestinian group that rules the Strip. Survival in Gaza now means not only escaping death from the thousands of Israeli airstrikes that have rained down over the past two weeks, but also finding enough to eat and drink. The United Nations has called the situation a humanitarian catastrophe and has warned that all of Gaza is in danger of running out of water as a result of the Israeli siege. Some Gazans are skipping multiple meals just to ensure their children are able to eat. Others have resorted to drinking brackish water or mixing potable water with contaminated water. The streets are filled with people carrying jugs or bottles to fill whenever they have the chance. The lucky ones have donkey-drawn carts. Few vehicles are on the streets these days as what little fuel is left in Gaza is mostly reserved for ambulances to ferry the dead and injured and to run hospital generators. Israeli drones buzz in the sky overhead, and airstrikes regularly pound the crowded and impoverished territory that is home to more than two million Palestinians. Even after the Israeli military ordered more than a million of them to evacuate the northern half of Gaza and head south ahead of an expected ground invasion, the south has not escaped deadly bombardments. Every morning, Ali Dababish, 19, leaves the home where she and her friend have sought shelter in southern Gaza 
in search of the day's water and bread. Her family, including four young children, have been in Kanyunis for 11 days after fleeing their home in Gaza City in the north when airstrikes hit the buildings around them, she said. We come here even as we're afraid they might strike the bakery, but we have no other choice. We have to come here to feed the children, Ms. Dababish said on Tuesday, while standing in a line with her sister. We know at any moment they can strike the bakery or around the bakery. The head of the Hamas government's media office, Salama Marouf, said in a statement on Wednesday that Israeli airstrikes had destroyed a bakery at Al-Maghazi refugee camp in the central Gaza Strip hours after UNRWA, the UN agency that aids Palestinian refugees, supplied it with flour sacks to make bread for tens of thousands of displaced people. Four aid convoys that reached Gaza from neighboring Egypt in recent days have brought in water and food. Mr. Marouf went on to accuse Israel of bombing ten bakeries across the Gaza Strip as of Wednesday. Asked about these allegations, the Israeli military said it only and specifically strikes military targets. The allegations to the contrary are abhorrent and spread disinformation that puts civilians at risk. Ms. Dababish said she sometimes waited in line for hours to buy bread and had seen fights break out. Sometimes she walks from bakery to bakery just to buy a loaf. Some don't have gas to power their ovens, while at others the line is too long. And then there are the days when she can't find any bread to buy. At home, she and the other adults often skip meals and go to bed hungry in order to ensure the children can eat, she said. The water situation is just as dire. We drink salty water. Everyone is drinking salty water, she said. Every day we live the struggle, she added. The important thing is for this war to end and for us to return to our homes in Gaza City and see who has remained alive and who has been martyred and who has been injured. Last week, after days of acute water shortages in Gaza, Israel agreed to restore water to a pipeline that served a southern part of the territory, but that has done little to relieve the water crisis and the daily search. The UN says the water coming in aid shipments is a fraction of the bottled water that Gaza needs on a daily basis. Israel so far has barred the humanitarian aid convoys from bringing fuel, which is needed to power water facilities and desalination plants. Yahya Al-Kawi, 30, said on Tuesday, that he and his family have had to cut back on bathing and use water only for crucial necessities. At 6 a.m. we set out and go around to find water and fill up. We don't have any water at home, he said, standing next to a horse-drawn cart where he had piled on a large black water tank and two smaller yellow jugs. Others at the same water station in Kanyunis said they were only able to bathe once a week now. They cannot afford to use too much water on any given day because there is no assurance they will be able to fill up the next morning. Sometimes by the time Mr. Al-Kawi gets to water stations around the town, their power will have cut and there's no more water, so he moves on to the next spot. We go from one station to another, he said. Sometimes we're not finding salty or drinkable water. We are exhausted just finding anything. We continue with this story. Who decides Penn's future, donors or the university? This was written by Stephanie Saul. In the two days after Hamas killed hundreds of men, women, and children in a surprise attack on Israel, 
the University of Pennsylvania had not reached out to its students or alumni with an official statement, but it did post a message on Instagram honoring Native and Indigenous people and their culture, history, and importance as members of the Penn community. That post set off one of the university's largest donors, Mark Rowan, chief of the private equity giant Apollo Global Management. So this weekend, while 1,200 Israelis were being butchered and murdered and raped, we tweeted as a university about Indigenous Peoples Day, he said in a CNBC interview. Mr. Rowan, who with his wife gave at least $50 million to Penn, had been angry for a while. Back in September, he and another alumni, including the philanthropist Ronald S. Lauder, had pleaded with the university's president, Liz Magel, to cancel or strongly condemn a Palestinian literary conference. Citing free speech, she declined, while acknowledging that some of the speakers had a history of remarks considered to be anti-Semitic. As a university, she wrote in a statement, we also fiercely support the free exchange of ideas as central to our educational mission. To Mr. Rowan and others, the administration had lost its moral compass and overlooked the concerns of the university's Jewish community. He called for donors to cut their gifts to one dollar as an unmistakable symbolic protest and demanded the resignation of Ms. Magel and Scott L. Bach, chairman of the Board of Trustees. There has been a gathering storm around these issues, Mr. Rowan said on CNBC. You know, microaggressions are condemned with extreme moral outrage and yet violence, particularly violence against Jews. Anti-Semitism seems to have found a place of tolerance on the campus, protected by free speech. Since then, some of Penn's most influential alumni and benefactors, including Mr. Lauder, the former Utah Governor John Huntsman, and the law and order creator Dick Wolf, have joined Mr. Rowan in pulling funding. Even before the conference, though, tensions had been simmering at Penn over what some donors viewed as the universe, as the university's leftward shift including a transgender athlete on the women's swim team and the push for diversity, equity, and inclusion programs by the dean of the business school. They were also concerned about the declining number of Jewish students. A couple of donors, it turned out, had cut off contributions well before the conference. The conservatives have this intersecting set of issues, and among them, Pro-Israel stuff is one of them, said Robert Vitalis, a Penn professor who formerly ran the university's Middle East Center and supported the Palestinian writers. The conference became a vehicle. It's not unusual for donors, unhappy with student activism, to pull back giving. A host of universities have struggled to bridge political and cultural divides among donors, faculty, and students. At the University of Texas at Austin, alumni threatened to cut funds over efforts to eliminate the university's fight song. And at the University of Denver, a plan to give an award to President George W. Bush drew donor ire. But donors rarely try to topple the leadership so publicly. For many watching this battle, the campaign to wrest control over the university's direction its policies, principles, and vision for the future were unsettling. The donor outcry dismayed pro-Palestinian alumni, who in an October 18th open letter criticized the Penn administration, as well as influential donors, for overlooking the treatment of Palestinians in the ensuing violence. Reports from UN and who experts have highlighted the humanitarian catastrophe that is unfolding, the letter said. Over a million individuals have been displaced, with countless lives lost or forever altered. 
Administrators at the university declined requests for interviews, but Risa L. Leibowitz, a Cornell professor who researches academic freedom and faculty governance, said that pressure from donors can undermine public confidence in institutions. It's essential that the university remains independent from donor pressure or influence on the content of work that's done in the university, said Ms. Liberwitz, who is also general counsel for the American Association of University Professors. The public needs to trust us that we're doing research or teaching or other educational activities without being pressured to take certain positions. A Campus on Edge When she was inaugurated as president a year ago, Miss Magel seemed to have the perfect pedigree. As provost at the University of Virginia, she helped develop a version of the Chicago Principles which are intended to protect freedom of expression on campus. Very broadly, I am deeply committed to academic freedom, Miss Magel had told the Daily Pennsylvanian, the campus newspaper. Academic freedom debates had been roiling Penn's campus. Many students and alumni had demanded action on Amy Wax, the Penn law professor who has said that black people have lower cognitive ability than white people and that the country was better off without Asians. The outcome of a faculty hearing considering sanctions has not been announced. It was against this backdrop that Ms. Magel started receiving complaints about the Palestine Writers Literature Festival, which fell on the weekend of September 22nd, coinciding in part with Yom Kippur. Organized with the university's College of Arts and Sciences, the conference featured 120 speakers, many of them literary figures, virtually all pro-Palestinian. Mr. Lauder, the cosmetics billionaire whose family name is on both a dormitory and a business school program, had visited Miss Magel to ask that she cancel the conference. Similar complaints, some stopping short of asking for cancellation, came in from national and local Jewish groups and students from Penn Hillel, the Jewish campus organization. They cited a range of speakers that they considered objectionable. They noted, for instance, the presence of the Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Vit Tan Yun, a, a vocal supporter of the movement to boycott, divest from, and sanction Israel, known as BDS. And they objected to Roger Waters. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Pink Floyd musician who had worn a Nazi-like costume in a Berlin, Berlin concert, which he said was intended as a statement against fascism. Despite the protest and anti-Semitic incidents on campus, the conference went on. In an opening speech, Suzanne Albuhawa, a novelist and conference organizer, criticized the hysterical racist conversations and panic over the festival. We remain proud, unbroken, defiant, honoring our ancestors, even though we are battered, colonized, exiled, raw, terrorized, and demeaned wholesale, she said. Alumni donors push back. One day after the Indigenous People's Day Post, Ms. Magel issued her first statement condemning the Hamas assault. Critics said it was insufficiently forceful. That same day, Mr. Rowan submitted an opinion piece to the Daily Pennsylvanian criticizing Ms. Magel for what he called her moral failure to condemn the conference. He urged alumni to send in $1 checks and repeated the call on CNBC's Squawk Box. 
Mr. Rowan serves as chairman of the board of Wharton, the university's business school, where many of Penn's big-money donors earned degrees. The school, which wields tremendous influence over the university's operations, is responsible for much of Penn's fundraising and prestige. Some Wharton alumni had been unhappy with the university's direction for a long time. Jonathan S. Jacobson, who found, who founded of the investment firm High Sage Ventures, wrote in a recent letter to Miss Magel that he and his wife had given gifts over the years that amounted to multiple seven figures, including significant money for Penn's basketball program. But, he wrote, he began cutting donations nearly two years ago. The university I attended and shaped me is virtually unrecognizable today, he wrote, and the values it stands for are not American ones. He added, you are a product of a very screwed-up higher-ed value system where academic rigor has been replaced by extremist political ideology. He also suggested that the university had pressured women on the swim team and their parents to not speak out publicly about Leah Thomas, a transgender athlete. In a text message, Mr. Jacobson said he would not go into detail about why he stopped giving, but added, I stopped supporting Penn for many reasons. Other Wharton alumni questioned the direction of the business school. Since she started as dean in 2020, Erica James, the first black woman to hold that job, has emphasized diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, including the addition of a graduate major on the subject, as well as environmental, social, and corporate governance. That agenda may have driven away some alumni, in his opinion piece, Mr. Rowan wrote that the university had already lost a $100 million gift, <coughs> a reference to a donation by Ross Stevens, founder of Stone Ridge Asset Management, to the University of Chicago's Booth Business School. Dr. Stevens, an alumnus of both Booth and Wharton, signed the open letter. He would not publicly discuss the $100 million donation to Booth. But two friends confirmed that he had planned to give the money to Wharton, but changed his mind because he thought the school was prioritizing DEI over enhancing the business school's academic ac excellence. <coughs> A decline in numbers. Nina Bauer Shapiro, a New York clothing designer and 1992 Penn graduate, was among alumni who had noticed the declining number of Jewish students at universities. Since I was at Penn, I think there are half the amount of Jewish students going to Penn now, Ms. Shapiro said in an interview. They don't want Jews. She is sending in a check for $1 this year. In an October 16th letter about the Palestinian conference, Mr. Lauder also wrote about the drastic change in the numbers of Jewish students enrolled and that Penn had once been a vibrant environment for Jewish students, but was now openly hostile. Demographic reports released by universities generally do not break out religious affiliation as a separate category but Hillel groups on some Ivy League campuses, including Penn, had recently said that the number of Jewish students is declining. Some Jewish groups and publications have attributed that decline partly to the push at universities for more diverse classes. At Penn, the campus Hillel noted that Jews had made up about a third of Penn's student body several decades ago but their percentage had declined to 16%. This decrease had also upset David Megerman, a computer scientist, investor, and philanthropist, who also added in an interview that he sees general trends on college campuses around America 
that are giving in to certain views that are anti-Semitic. Who gets to speak? In the weeks since the Palestinian Writers' Conference, the university has issued a series of statements, four of them from President Megel, including a stronger condemnation of the Hamas attack that call the group terrorists. These statements have faced criticism as well, including from the pro-Palestinian alumni who wrote in their open letter that her statements failed to recognize the significant suffering and loss of Palestinian life. Every innocent life lost merits our acknowledgement and profound grief. Within Penn, the administration has maintained its core support, including from the Alumni Association. The trustees, who huddled for several hours over two meetings, issued a statement saying Ms. Magel and her leadership team are the right group to take the university forward. Three trustees on the call said there was no dissent. Andy Ratcliffe, a trustee and founder of, ben March, of Benchmark Capital, said, There are a lot of people who want free speech except when it affects them. The three leaders of the Faculty Senate also issued a pointed statement. Academic freedom, they said, is not a commodity to be bought and sold by those who seek to use their pocketbooks to shape our mission. A correction was made on October 26, 2023. An earlier version of this article misspelled the given name of a Penn alumnus. He is Jonathan S. Jacobson, not Jonathan. One is spelled with an A, one with an O. He is founder, not co-founder, of High Sage Ventures. We now turn to this opinion piece by Thomas L. Friedman, Israel, From the Six-Day War to the Six-Front War. If you care about Israel, you should be more worried than any other time since 1967. Back then, Israel defeated the armies of three Arab states, Egypt, Syria, and Jordan, in what became known as the Six-Day War. Today, if you look closely, you'll see that Israel is now fighting the Six-Front War. This war is being fought by and through non-state actors, nationalities, social networks, ideological movements, West Bank communities, and Israeli political factions. And it is the most complex war I've ever covered. But one thing is crystal clear to me. Israel cannot win the Six-Front War alone. It can only win if Israel and the United States can assemble a global alliance. Unfortunately, Israel today has a Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, and a ruling coalition that will not and cannot produce the keystone needed to sustain such a global alliance. That keystone is to declare an end to the expansion of Israeli settlements in the West Bank and overhaul Israel's relations with the Palestinian Authority so that it becomes a credible, legitimate Palestinian partner that can govern a post-Hamas Gaza and forge a broader two-state solution, including the West Bank. If Israel is asking its best allies to help the Jewish state seek justice in Gaza while asking them to look the other way as Israel builds a settlement kingdom in the West Bank with the express goal of annexation, that is strategically and morally incoherent. It won't work. Israel will not be able to generate the time, financial assistance, legitimacy, the Palestinian partner or the global allies it needs to win this six-front war. And all six fronts are now hiding in plain sight. First, Israel is fighting a full-scale war against Hamas in and around Gaza, in which we can now see Hamas still has so much residual capacity that it was able to launch a seaborne attack on Israel on Tuesday and on Wednesday fired long-range rockets toward Israel's southern port city of Elat and northern port city of Haifa. It is terrifying to see how many resources Hamas diverted 
to build weapons rather than to aid Gaza's human capital, and now effectively it hid that from Israel and the world. Indeed, it is hard not to notice the contrast between Gaza's evident human poverty and the wealth of weaponry Hamas has built and deployed. Hamas's dream has long been the unification of the front surrounding Israel, regionally and globally. Israel's strategy has always been to act in ways to prevent that until this Netanyahu coalition of ultra-Orthodox and Jewish supremacists came to power last December and began behaving in ways that actually helped foster the unification of the anti-Israel front. This concludes the reading of the New York Times. Your reader for today has been Blanca Michael Ward. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions concerning this program, please feel free to call us at 859-422-6390. Thank you for listening, and now please stay tuned for continued programming on Radio I.